faithful, powerful, life-giving name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. You can open your Bible to Galatians chapter 5. We've been in the book of Galatians all of this year so far. Uh, The book of Galatians will carry us through Easter Sunday, which is just four weeks away. I encourage you, uh, if you have not already, to invite those you know who do not uh, normally attend church to join you on Easter Sunday as um, you might be surprised at who would say yes uh, to you. If you don't have a friend coming with you on Easter Sunday, I would encourage you to either attend the 8 o'clock or the 11 o'clock gathering. Uh, Last Easter, we had over 1,300 people on campus. We expect more this year, and so we want to make as much room as possible. After Easter, we'll begin in the book of Ephesians. But as we uh, are walking through Galatians, we've uh, titled our time in Galatians, Centered, We've been talking about the need to be centered around the gospel as individuals and as a church. And last week, I used an analogy, not the analogy of the Simpsons and the Flanders, but the analogy that Paul used of law and grace, where he explained that Ishmael came about through Sarah and Abraham taking things into their own hands to bring about the will of God, versus Isaac, who was born by the promise. God had to show up, and he had to deliver This promise. And I want you to see that just as we have Ishmael and Isaac, there are two types of faith that exist side by side and yet are so distinct. One, which is enslaved to the promise and thinks that we have to figure out how to get the promise, the other who believes in God for the promise. And we see this existing in different churches in our community, and I would even suggest within our own church. And what I believe this time in Galatians is calling us to do is is to be people who are centered around the gospel, who preach the gospel to ourselves, who are daily abiding in Christ and trusting in Christ. And I believe we are called to make disciples of Christ centered around the gospel. So I believe we should be active in our homes and in our relationship with others in helping them to see this. And Paul shows us why this is important in chapter five, verse one. All that he's been saying, he says in verse one here, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Christ has set us free to be free. It is not enough that we know that we are free from sin. Pastor Matt Chandler puts it this way, not only have we been saved from something, but we have been saved to something. We're not just saved from the penalty of sin and the eternal consequences of sin, but we are saved to something in Christianity. And this text says that at least a part of that something we have been saved to is Freedom. Our enjoyment of freedom is much more important to God than many of the day-to-day decisions that fill us with so much concern. Will I have enough money? Am I making the right decisions about my future? Will I get to experience the things I want to experience? And I would suggest that some of you who claim Jesus, who believe in Jesus, do not feel free. You constantly feel 
pressure, guilt, uncertainty. People typically deal with these feelings by buying toys, buying things, and by accumulating these possessions and these things we want, we feel like it can kind of medicate us from those feelings that we might have. Or by finding something we can succeed in. And so we kind of say, all these other areas of my life are not where they need to be, but I'm going to focus solely on this one thing. And I'm going to kind of build my identity on this one thing. And I'm good at this one thing. And the more we can devote time and energy to that one thing, we can forget how everything else makes us feel. Or maybe it's by giving our children the life that we wanted or we think they should have. And so we feel like even though we have this pressure and this uncertainty and this guilt in our life, if we can give them a good life, we can suppress that, among other things. And some of us are using religion to deal with these feelings. And so we just pile on this guilt and pressure and uncertainty more guilt. Am I doing enough for God? Am I avoiding the things that I need to avoid for God? You are free from that. I want you to hear this. You are free from that. Not because I say so, because for freedom, Christ has set you free. In verse one, Paul reminds Christians that through Christ, God has adopted them. He's talked about that. You don't have to work to get into the family. You don't have to put yourself in the position of slaves anymore. You are a child of God. You are free. And he said, stand firm, therefore, which is a, a military term, meaning have resolve, stay there. Even though there are going to be attacks on you is what is implied here, stay there. We don't naturally stick with the gospel. We naturally drift away from the gospel. And spiritual maturity is standing firm in the gospel. It's staying centered around the gospel. It's defending ourselves against the attacks that want to take away our freedom in Christ. Paul says, so do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. We were once slaves. We once thought we had freedom in pursuing our worldly desires. That's how we often think of freedom, that we're unrestricted. We could pursue whatever we want. But I, I would ask you to imagine a fish that develops a psychological disorder who wants to hop on the water, out of the water, onto dry land. And so the fish does that. And the fish starts flopping around and thinks, I'm free. I'm no longer constrained by that restrictive ocean but he won't be free for very long, he'll be dead. He's designed to be in water. He'll thrive only when he is in water. Pursuing our worldly desires does not bring freedom. It kills us. It doesn't give us the contentment that it promises. It's never enough. We were designed to be in the water, swimming in the grace of God's design for our lives. And Jesus, listen, Jesus has freed you and I from the burden of figuring out happiness. Jesus has freed you and I from the burden of figuring out happiness. Some of you are not there yet. Even as I say those words, your autonomy, 
your defensiveness, it swells up. You see anything, including God, that restricts the pursuit of happiness in your terms as opposition. And I love you. And I pray that God would open your eyes. I want you to see that God isn't against your freedom and joy. He is your only way to it. He is your only way to it. And some of you have come to this point. You were at the end of your rope. There was an emptiness in you, even though you might have things in your life, and you turned to God. What Paul is saying to the Galatian Christians, and I think that is applicable to all Christians, is God has freed you. Don't enslave yourself again in the exact same way you once were, but now with religion. That's the temptation for the Christian, to slip back into the yoke of slavery. Yoke meant pattern or system. And in this term, it usually meant a way of righteous living. It was a system or a pattern to be righteous. But the yoke of religion that Paul is talking about, you must do this, whether it's moralistic or it's ritualistic or it's spiritualistic or it's progressive, it creates pressure. It creates guilt. It creates uncertainty. And it creates a tiredness and a weariness. We have a lot of weary Christians whose faith makes them more weary. I want you to contrast that with what Jesus invites us to. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 through 30, the words of Jesus are, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke, my way of righteousness, upon you, and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. I think there are some of you who are exhausted from your yoke of righteousness. Whether you're religious or you're non-religious, you feel this burden of measuring up, this burden of finding what makes you happy, a burden of finding your purpose, a burden of finding your calling, and your identity is tied to these things. And the yoke of Jesus is come to me and learn from me. Christianity is not another burden to show you how to find your way. It is Jesus taking your burdens and showing you that he is the way. Christianity is not something else to pile on top of all the other burdens that you have in life to figure out what makes you happy, to figure out your purpose, to figure out meaning. It's Jesus taking all of those burdens and showing you he is the way, he is purpose, he is meaning, he is life. So you don't need to add to that, Christian. Now look at verse two. Yikes, I'm just now in verse two. Look at verse two. Look, I, Paul, say to you, that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Some of you natural people are like, yeah. That's not what Paul's talking about. This is before granola moms. What Paul is saying here 
is that circumcision was something in this day that made you fit the part. And there were those that were teaching circumcision is necessary to be saved. Paul says, if you are saying that this saves you, Christ does you no good. If you and I can save ourselves by our own behavior, then we do not need a savior. I don't drink, so I'm a Christian. I'm involved in church, so I'm a Christian. I'm good to others, so I'm saved. Paul says in verse three, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. There's not an issue with getting circumcised. Paul had Timothy circumcised for strategic missionary reasons according to Acts chapter 16, verse three. But Paul's problem was the motive behind the requirement of circumcision. He's saying you can't pick and choose what laws or religious acts save you. If you are saying you must do this to be saved, then you must do it all. You see, there are those who choose to emphasize certain aspects of the law, usually motivated by cultural and political preferences, to say you have to do this or you're not a Christian, but it doesn't work like that. Paul says in verse four, you are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. Paul, referencing professing Christians here, who say the law saves. You're really saying when you say that, I don't need Jesus because I have my rules. Jesus isn't enough for you. You need your works. You're saying he isn't my only chance. You're saying it's Jesus and. You're saying it's Jesus plus. You're saying I need more. And if you go back to trying to do something yourself to get closer to God, you are severing yourself off from the power of grace. Christianity is a response to the favor of God, not a recipe for it. Christianity is a response to the favor of God, not a recipe for it. It's like the difference between preparing food and eating the food. Eating the food is receiving the blessing which someone has already done for you. That's Christianity. We have what we call our discipleship essentials here. We say these are kind of the essentials of a, of a disciple of Christ. Worship, grow, serve, give, reach. We think if everybody is doing those five things, it will make us a healthier church. It will make them healthier believers. But I want you to understand, we call them the discipleship essentials, not the salvific essentials. We're not saying that if you don't worship, if you don't grow, if you don't serve, if you don't give, if you don't reach, you're not saved. We're not saying that. You see the difference here? If you make these things essential for salvation, you're saying grace isn't how I'm saved. How awesome I am at Christian living is why I'm saved. That's what you're saying. I remember I went, in my undergrad, I went to a Bible college for my undergrad and one of our professors who I'm not particularly fond of and you'll know that by the way I say this um, and I won't say his name, we'll call him Dr. Moore. Um, he, uh, in one class, I don't even know how he got there but he was teaching and he started going off and he was just for about five to 10 minutes, like, I've never touched alcohol, and I've never touched tobacco, and I, you know, never had sex before marriage, and I didn't, you know, probably dance is how legalistic that was, and I, I didn't do this, and, uh, you know, he keeps going on this list, and one of my classmates says, uh, Dr. Moore, sounds like you don't need Jesus. I didn't say that, I wanted an A, but I was thinking that as well. You see, this is what 
he means when he says you have fallen away from grace. Now, are there those who do think that you can fall away from grace in the sense that you can lose your salvation? I just want to read one verse to you, but let me first remind you of the context. In 1 John chapter 2, Jesus is warning the disciples that there will be those who preach a different gospel, but use the name of Jesus in preaching that gospel. And there will be those that are bought in 100%. And ultimately, they won't stay with Jesus and the disciples because they believe in something else. Jesus, John said, excuse me, Jesus says, 1 John 2 says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they were, had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they're all not of us. So what he's saying is saying they were never really for the gospel in the first place. I mean, if we're both headed somewhere in the West, even though we might have different destinations in mind, we might have the same journey for a few hundred miles. But there always comes that point where if our destination is somewhere else than Jesus has in mind, we're gonna have to choose to go with him or keep going our course. Is it possible that there are those who are pretending to be committed to Jesus, but they really are in it for something else? Absolutely. That's scripturally true. They see God as a means to their version of freedom, not as the one where freedom is found. Now, in Hebrews chapter six, and I'm not gonna read all this, but I encourage you to go there. It's a text that they would use to say, hey, you can fall away from Christ. In Hebrews six, basically the point is those who were pursuing Christ and then they're not pursuing Christ and they come back, Christ can't be crucified again. Well, I will just say this. If anyone ever teaches you that Hebrews six means you can lose your salvation, Remind them that it says you can't have it back if that's what it's saying. So once you've lost it, it's gone. That's not what Paul's saying there. What he's saying there is he's saying they were never really redeemed in the first place. He's talking about the sufficiency of the crucifixion of Christ to save us and the transforming power of the gospel. That's the point that he's making here. The idea that we could lose our salvation means we forgot who did the saving. John MacArthur puts it like this, if you could lose your salvation, you would. We can't keep it. It's not us that does the saving. The Bible is pretty clear that when Jesus saves you, nothing can take you out of his hand. Now, I've heard people say, well, that doesn't mean you can't climb out. Yes, it does mean you can't climb out. If angels, demons, life, death, principalities, visible and invisible, can't pluck you out of the hands of God, then I'm guessing you also can't climb out. The warning, that's right, amen. <laughs> the warning to believers here in Galatians 5 is what can happen if you begin to focus on and pursue a Christianity that is built upon pride and insecurity. And Paul encourages the believers in verse five, for through the spirit by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Hope, that's the word. That's the word we're really all looking for. And you've gotta really dig into this verse to get hope. I don't mean that you need Bible degrees, I just mean you need to slow down. Look at what he says, for through the spirit. Hope is a spiritual thing. Some of you don't have hope. You don't have hope in death. You don't have hope that you'll ever be happy. 
And what you need is the work of the Spirit in your life. This happens through the Spirit. Hope is a spiritual thing. He says, for through the Spirit, by faith. Really two questions there. First, so how do we grow in faith? Well, Jesus said if we have the faith of a mustard seed, that God will grow it into the biggest plant. We just need a little bit of faith. We just need, we don't need this great amount of faith. We just need a little bit. Faith isn't something we find in our backyard or finally find the right church leader that gives it to us or some perfect recipe. It's just this little bit of faith that we have that we can place our trust in God. My kids were listening to a Christian rapper this week. I like Christian rap. Those of you who don't, this might be, uh, you might use this against me, but I still debate that with you. But in the lyrics to one of these newer songs that came out, popular song, uh, one of the lines says, what, uh, what, what's a little bit of faith, or what can a little bit of faith do if you don't believe in you? And the whole message of this song by this rapper was basically like, he had to have this resolve. He had to have this commitment. You can't just have a little bit of faith. You really gotta work hard. And I told him, I said, that's the opposite of what Jesus says. Jesus isn't asking you to have great faith. He's asking you to have a small amount of faith in a great God. And that is different. What is faith? Faith is being convinced that something is true. It's trusting him. It's trusting him. And so for through the spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait. I mean, what, what, this is an act of waiting. This is kind of revolving our life around something that's gonna happen. I remember when we had our first child. I mean, and it's getting closer to the end, you know, where the baby's about to come. And, and, and I remember like, our, our patterns, our schedule, so much was revolved around that. Not so much with two, three, and four. We had done that before. But with one, you know, I, I remember that. And, and this is kind of the implications here as Christians. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. It means our life is patterned around this hope of righteousness. Our schedule, our calendar, our money, everything is kind of this eager waiting for the hope of righteousness, the fulfillment of the promise. That's not just then, one day, it's now. That's where freedom comes from. John Piper defines freedom in the following way. True freedom is the opportunity, ability, and desire to do what may, will make you happy in a thousand years. I think we often think of freedom as what will make me happy right now. But true freedom, is having the opportunity really, and desire to do what will make you happy in a thousand years. And that's a freedom that comes from God. That's what God is freeing us to do, to experience the fulfillment of his promise. The comfort is that in the presence of a struggle with sin in this life, that's not a sign that we are lost. Perfection is not the test of the spiritual life in this age. More is not the test of spiritual maturity. And that's a great comfort to saved sinners. That's what Paul's doing here. He's contrasting the difference between the law as the means of righteousness and the promise. Look at what he says in verse six. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. We define spiritual maturity in all kinds of ways. And it may have some value, but it doesn't count in eternity. 
if it's not connected to faith working through love. The question of spiritual maturity is whether or not this, whatever this is, is faith working through love. As a pastor who preaches and teaches the Bible and meets with people, I might be right, but if what I'm saying isn't my faith in God working through love, then that's not spiritual maturity when I say it. We want everything we do to be motivated by the trust we have for God, reflecting a love for him and a love for other people. Is the seed of the gospel growing in our hearts? And and these verses teach that the mindset of slavery is the mindset of a debtor. One who feels a pressure to pay back what he has borrowed or needs to borrow. All the works of the law, including circumcision, are the currency with which the legalistic crowd here aims to satisfy their debts to God. God has done so much for me, and I will devote my life to paying back my debt, even though I will never be able to pay it back completely. And even though most Christians would say they're not trying to earn their salvation, it is very easy to think of God's free gift as a loan to be repaid. Or that in order to get God's blessings, we have to earn it. This is why there's an appeal to moralism and spiritualism and pragmatism. And the surprising point of these verses for us is that God does not want to deal with us as debtors. None of us feels completely free when we are burdened with a debt to be repaid. Christ does not want you to relate to him as a debtor who uses the law to make installment payments on an unending loan. The debt has been paid. The debt has been paid. And a lot of these things that mask themselves in religion promise freedom, and Christ is the only one who delivers. The gospel is the only thing that delivers. So what counts is faith in Christ. Not a work of faith, but the work of faith. Paul says in verse seven, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. He says, you were led away from the gospel. Who led you away? I will tell you who it is not. It is not Jesus. Walking away from gospel centrality is not just about doctrine. It's about Jesus. This isn't just a doctrinal preference thing. That's fine, doctrinal preference. This is about the gospel being the center of our life and the motivator for our life. That is about Jesus. And I'm telling you that these promises that our religion, whether it be certain moral convictions or spiritual progression or intellectual positions or traditional or ritual commitments, the promise that those things will save us or bring us to a different level of Christianity are man-made. You might even say they are demonic. Jesus said the Pharisees hold the traditions of men over the doctrines of God. And even from some of you, you've said this to me, you've said this about me, you think, is it really that big of a deal? You see people in these churches that have kind of drifted in these directions, they're all over our area, and you think, is it really a big deal? And then you think, we shouldn't be critical of others and their faith, and even the ones around you and the things they say, you think that. Let me tell you something, that mindset is not founded in God's word. That is a Western 
mindset that says, let others live how they wanna live. That's the opposite of what Christ and the Bible teaches us. Look at verse nine. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. A little bit of leaven ruins a batch of unleavened bread. My four-year-old, when he's drinking something after lunch, let me just say this, you wouldn't drink after him. Okay, I do, but Christy wouldn't. Because that cup of water is 98% water and 2% chewed up hot dog. And it's in there floating around and you can see it. What Paul is saying is he's saying drifting away from the gospel, religious moralism, advancing in your faith because of spiritual progression, whatever it might be, it's a poison. And a little bit of leaven leavens the whole lump. He says this in verse 10. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. He says, I think you're believers, so you won't hold these views. But the one who does and is troubling you, there is a penalty for him. And in chapter one, he said, even if an angel preaches a different gospel, he ought to be accursed. Look at verse 11. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. Paul says, I'm not preaching circumcision. And some are saying, I'm, I'm doing that, and I'm not. And you know that because they're against what I'm preaching. Notice this debate that takes place between those who are focused on the gospel and those who are not. It exists. And he says, those on the other side, they're trying to make much of you, but for no good purpose. They just want to win you to their side and to their crowd. They're not trying to get you to be focused on the gospel. And he says, they need to be stopped. And if you still don't see the seriousness of this, just look at our last verse, verse 12. I wish those who settle you would emasculate themselves. Some of you have been waiting for me to get to this verse. I say some strong statements. Like people hear me talking, like, did he really just say that? Especially my wife. Paul has me beat. He says, if you're gonna teach circumcision while you're practicing that, go ahead and just finish the job. That's how serious he makes keeping the gospel central. That's why it is so important that we are committed to discipleship. That is why it is so important when our friend is, is going in a weird direction and we see that on Facebook or we hear them talk about that or we're in a life group and somebody says something off base, we don't just go eat lunch after. I'm not saying you call them out in class, but you need to reach out to them and say that is not in line with what Christ would have for you. We have to keep the gospel central. Let me give you three reasons why and let's go, let's go home or wherever you're going. Number one. Freedom, to a life group, please. Freedom is, or serve in children's ministry still. Freedom is important. You have been created for it. And the cross is the only way to it. The cross means the end of all boasting and anything we can do. There were people who were making circumcision a ground for boasting. They were treating it not as a gift of grace from God, but as a debt or price to be paid to God. The way they treated circumcision called attention to their religious ability and not to God's free grace. Nothing made Paul angrier than the religious nullification of the freedom of God's grace. If you want freedom, 
or excuse me, if you want God's favor, there are two ways that you're gonna choose to relate to him. You can relate to him as an heir or you can relate to him as a slave. The difference is that a slave tries to become acceptable to his master by presenting him valuable service. But the heir trusts that the inheritance of his father is by virtue of the father's will without the heir earning any of it. A slave is never quite sure he has done enough to please his master and win honorable standing in the house. And some of you aren't very religious. You're just lazier slaves. A son rests in the standing he has. A daughter rests in the standing she has by virtue of our birth and the covenant our father has made with us. And we need to understand this. It's important. It's life-changing. We must be about freedom. It's important. Most of you know that we're foster parents. We've been foster parents for in our seventh year now. And one particular child that we had come into our home, I've shared this before, um, he was a little bit older. And one of the sad things about foster care for children that have kind of been to a few different placements is they have all this stuff and when they move, they really don't have enough to carry it with. And so uh, he came with like eight trash bags of his stuff. Now, most of it was junk. Most of it was junk, but had to store it, had to figure out what to do with it. Well, we, we go through and clean out our kids' stuff, you know, every three months or so and their tears and all that. And then, then we live on. And whenever we would do this and I would try to talk to him about some of the stuff, it was like, no way. And I was like, look, I, I understand in my mind there's insecurity there. There's a lot he's been through. I'm not going to make him get rid of that stuff. And then Christmas rolled around. And, you know, I mean, us, the grandparents, two sets of grandparents. I mean, it's too much stuff. But our kids are showered with gifts. He saw this. The next time we went around to getting rid of things in our house, and I was saying, because we need to make room for more stuff, he, he was willing to get rid of all of his junk because he knew the gifts that awaited him. When we understand what the Father wills for us, there's a freedom to let go of so much. This is important. Number two, freedom isn't free. We live in a military culture. You, you guys get this. Our freedom was bought by the blood of Jesus. And grace covers our life. Grace acknowledges our failures. Grace does not gloss over our shortcomings. Grace sees them. Grace acknowledges that they're there. Grace acknowledges that we fall short. Grace acknowledges that we're going to continue to fall short. Grace acknowledges the struggles of where you are what you've done, and what you're facing. And grace acknowledges it all while it covers it. Freedom isn't free. It's been bought with the blood of Jesus. Lastly, freedom is worth fighting for. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Jesus plus 
doing these things or not doing these things or going to these places or not going to these places. It could be as simple as Jesus plus homeschooling your kids. It's Jesus plus these kinds of movies. It's Jesus plus this kind of language. It's Jesus plus this kind of worship. Look, I believe a Christian should be baptized, but it can be Jesus plus baptism. Jesus plus church, right? This is what ends up happening if we're not on guard and standing firm. We become Jesus plus something. Jesus plus people. And we're not works-based. We're faith-based. The desires of faith are no less strong. But what faith desires is the thrill of feeling God rise victoriously to a challenge in us and through us. Works wants the thrill of feeling itself overcome an obstacle. Faith wants the thrill of feeling God overcome the obstacle. Works longs for the joy of being glorified as capable and strong and smart. Faith longs for the joy of seeing God glorified for his ability and his strength and his wisdom. In its religious form, work accepts the challenge of morality and seeks to conquer its obstacles through great exertion and offers the victory to God for his gratitude and for his applause. Faith accepts the challenge of morality, but only as an occasion to become the instrument of God's power. And when the victory is achieved, faith rejoices that all glory and thanks belong to God. These are two religions that exist side by side in every church. And I hope that this series in Galatians is helping you see this. This is important. And it's somewhat repetitive because the Bible's repetitive. But gospel centrality leads to gospel clarity in people's lives. I, I have the opportunity to talk to people about baptism on a regular basis. And one of the things you often hear is baptism is treated as this work. And so it's a step in the path that we want. And even when people refer to it, they refer to it that way. But what often happens when somebody is seeking Jesus and we talk about the step to baptism is they tell me this. I don't know if I'm ready to be baptized yet because I'm not worthy. (laughs) And I say, praise Jesus. You are not worthy. (laughs) That's the point. You're buried, dying to yourself, and Christ's blood washes you clean and raises you to life in him. That's what baptism is a picture of, of our identity in Christ. And then listen, as a Christian, here's our life in Christ. I remember I was asked to do this by a pastor I mean, I wasn't even married yet. I don't remember how old I was, and I think I still have the original, but I couldn't find it because I thought of this too late, and it's covered in pizza stains anyway, so it's okay. But he said, write on a piece of paper, God, I will, I think we have this on the screen maybe, and then just sign your name at the bottom. God, I will, you can fill in the rest, God. Do you know what? I'm a planner. I'm a dreamer, visionary, whatever. Do you know how freeing this is? To say, you know what? I don't know all that's gonna be right here. 
but I know who's up here. And I sign my name. That's what we've been called to. Don't put conditions on that. Just say, I'm yours. Make me more like you. Let's pray. God, thank you for your grace and the freedom we have in you. May we offer our lives to you in response, saying, I'll do whatever you have me do. Maybe today we'll go home and we'll literally sign that blank sheet of paper. But regardless if we do that or not, in our hearts, we're saying, Jesus, I've been bought by your blood and I'm yours. I trust you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I invite you to stand and let's respond to the word. This is our prayer, Lord Jesus, make us more.